0: Hayley Channer, Senior Policy Fellow with the Perth U.S.-Asia Centre. Today on 15 Minutes in Canberra, I am speaking with Levi West. Levi is an expert on terrorism and counterterrorism, and is the Director of Terrorism Studies at Charles Sturt University. His primary research interests relate to the intersection of information and communications technology with terrorism. Levi has undertaken research in the Middle East, South Asia, and Southeast Asia, and has lectured extensively to law enforcement, intelligence, and military audiences, both here in Australia and overseas. Levi, thank you for joining me. It's a pleasure. Levi, terrorism. Isn't it so 2000s and now the current threats are pandemics and relations with China,
1: yeah, one <laughs> could be forgiven for, for thinking that um, terrorism has this uncanny ability by literally being what it is to um, fairly abruptly remind publics and governments that um, its presence is enduring. Um, yeah, terrorism may drop from being the first order of business, and it has. There's no question about that. It is not the dominant national security threat from the perception of Western go- flyby's governments. Um, that's official in US strategy documentation, um, less official here. Um, but that doesn't mean it goes away. It just means that it's not the first order of business. The challenge that that presents is that it no longer has the default funding arrangements that it had once for the last 20 years. But you still have to do it. You know, any suggestion that certainly the domestic counterterrorism arrangements of Western governments are going to disappear is, is farcical.
0: So, I've known you for a few years now, but I'm not quite sure what actually drew your interest in the first stages to working on terrorism and looking at counterterrorism. What first made you look into this area?
1: Well, I mean, putting to one side the obvious bias that I have, which is what isn't, is it interesting about terrorism? Mm-hmm. Right? It's, it's a fundamentally complex phenomenon and problem, but I have an obvious bias in that regard. Um,
0: and we've grown up with it, really, too. Yeah,
1: it's, it's been guys. the dominant, you know, sort of, you know, dominant lens, I think, through which much of the past 20 years has been shaped in, you know, from benign things like trying to catch a plane all the way through macro-level geopolitics and all these sorts of things. Um, I'd argue that it's still a significant part of that uh, in a different way than it has been for the last 20 years. Um, my interest sort of grew out of two things, I suppose. First and foremost, I did a politics degree. And... Putting to one side all of the various discussions currently floating around Canberra, you know, policy discourse about what we refer to things as in the terrorism space. And, um, you know, terrorism is politically motivated violence at its core, a particular manifestation of non state politically motivated violence. And so, between an interest in politics generally and the idea of contentious politics in particular, things that are genuinely controversial um, and that divide populations or at least, you know, engage populations in, in you know, heated discourse was an interest, too, in change politics, civil rights, revolutions and resistance and all of those types of things. And at the edges of all that is terrorism, Mm -hmm. right? If your revolutionary movement isn't gaining mass traction and you're not getting anywhere, then often you will find a fringe of that revolutionary movement who decide that violence is the solution to that. Um, So that's kind of how it got there. And then I spent... um, 12 months in the US as part of my undergraduate degree and got to study stuff that you couldn't really study here as an undergrad um, On focused on terrorism and, and national security issues. And then spent a semester in Washington as an intern and not only did I fall in love with Washington itself and everything that came with being at a think tank and all that sort of stuff. Um, had a number of people, you know, senior people that I worked for at the time sort of go like, you, you have a, but this is your you've got a thing here, you should run with that.
0: In the last year and a half or so, world news and people's psyche has been totally dominated by the COVID-19 pandemic, which has taken a lot of attention off terrorism and counter-terrorism. For our audience who might not have heard a lot about counter-terrorism efforts um, and terrorist organizations recently, can you remind us in our own region, looking at Southeast Asia, what are the main terrorist groups that are active and are they increasing their operations?
1: So <clears throat> terrorism and counter-terrorism in Southeast Asia, certainly from an Australian perspective, is dominated first and foremost by the lens of Indonesia. Right? Much of our understanding and experience of terrorism and counter-terrorism is shaped by the Bali bombings, both of the Bali bombings and Jemaah islamia and all of the things associated with that. There is still very much a jihadist terrorist footprint within Indonesia, Um, where we find ourselves nowadays with Indonesia is that the Indonesians are incredibly capable at doing high-level, sophisticated counterterrorism within Indonesia. Um, Australia contributed to that a lot in the early years post-Bali, but, you know, by their own capability, Indonesia is an incredible counterterrorism actor. Um, So it's much like much of the jihadist threat outside the Middle East, including in the West, what you're seeing in Indonesia is very small manifestations. So, the structured pieces of Jarama Islamiyah that pulled off the Bali bombings has been decimated mm. over time. Um, Islamic State is very much present. Um, and there so has is,
0: Islamic State really taken over
1: from Jema'i Islamia? Uh, you see sort of parallels. Yeah? So in much the same way that Al-Qaeda hasn't evaporated and disappeared, it's been outplayed by Islamic State and we've paid vastly more attention to Islamic State in our media coverage of what goes on. It doesn't mean that Al-Qaeda goes away. So there's factional divisions and these types of things in Indonesia. Um, the other part of Southeast Asia is terrorism... Landscape is um, is the Southern Philippines. So most people would have been familiar with what happened in Marawi and the siege of Marawi. Australia contributed uh, resources to assisting the Filipino authorities in dealing with that, and that was very much an Islamic State manifestation. But that didn't happen in a vacuum. There is a long, long, long simmering separatist movement or jihadist movements that exist in the Southern Philippines. The Moro Islamic Liberation Front, Abu Sayyaf, who you know, or a terrorist organization one week and then become a kidnap for ransom organization the following week because mm-hmm. they need to raise some money and then go back to being a terrorist organization. These are long existing organizations. There's also a, um, a communist manifestation of Filipino terrorist terrorism. Um, they're the sort of two main theaters of, of sort of something that resembles conflict. Certainly the Southern Philippines is, is, is conflict. Indonesia is not conflict per se, but there is certainly a, an enduring terrorism presence. Um, in much of the rest of Southeast Asia, you're looking at logisticians, financiers, and people who are connected to mm. terrorist movements around the world or within Southeast Asia. But Indonesia and the Philippines are the two primary locations. There is still very much active jihadist terrorism in both of those locations. Mm. It's just not put a, putting together the kind of scale of operations that were Bali or certainly not Morali. Mm. Now, That has as much to do with ongoing counterterrorism efforts as it does anything else.
0: Your research has looked at uh, the way that terrorist organisations use the media and social media to spread their message and recruit new members. How has COVID-19 impacted terrorist organisations' methods and operations? Because it's not like people can travel anymore, and I assume a lot more people are doing things online. So have you seen a change in how they're operating?
1: Yeah, so um, probably most acute, in the extreme right wing space. Um, So COVID has had a particular um, controversy associated with it across sort of Five Eyes and Western jurisdictions where you've got anti-vaccination movements, QAnon conspiracy theorists and all these sorts of things, anti-lockdown protests and all that sort of stuff. And there's overlap between those movements and the extreme right. The assessment generally is that COVID has done two key things. One, people are isolated, right? So the more time someone spends at home and to be generalist about this, a 16 to 25 year old male, which is your target market for recruiting someone to a terrorist movement, particularly a right wing one, is stuck at home, not getting conventional social interaction and spending way more time online. Uh, That's a good set of ingredients for the beginning of winding up down a YouTube rabbit hole of watching Plandemic and then winding up on 8kun or Reddit somewhere and reading a subreddit down somewhere and then winding up consuming a whole bundle of stuff that overlaps with a bunch of neo-Nazi white supremacist stuff. that says that the Jews are conspiring to use COVID-19 to oppress everybody and blah, 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 blah. So in the right-wing space, and we also know that the right-wing, extreme right-wing, particularly in the States has used some of the COVID-19 measures to try and evidence the conspiracy theories that they believe in about government trying to suppress us all and take away our guns and all this kind of stuff. So <clears throat> it made its way into the jihadist narratives, right? not, as a, not in the way that the right has used it as an opportunity to try and recruit people to the movement. Um, but certainly, I mean, the thing about COVID is that it is an inherently political and social phenomenon. Terrorist organizations anchor their narratives and their ideologies around grievances that are inherently political and social. So mm-hmm. it makes logical sense that COVID becomes part of their animating narrative. Jihadis were advocating it, so like go and contract COVID and then try and spread it and this kind of stuff. Mm-hmm. A lot of it fanciful in its in its you know, in the way that it was incorporated. But certainly that that sort of Venn diagram between anti-vaccinations to a non-conspiracy theorists and the extreme right. I think it was in the 2019 AGO um, annual report. They made reference to the conspiracy theories that inform right-wing extremism. And right-wing extremism is at its core a bunch of conspiracy theories about <coughs> Jewish conspiracy, anti-Semitic conspiracy theories, and a whole range of conspiracies about government and New World Orders and all these types of things. That can plug quite neatly to anti-vaccination conspiracy theories you know in an australian context tracking the trajectory of someone like pete evans and watching him go from television chef chef (laughs) to wellness entrepreneur i guess is what he was to conspiracy theorist to the anti-semitic swat sticker image that he posted that was kind of the death knell of his mainstream presence
0: A couple of weeks ago, we had a Quad leaders meeting and one of the outcomes of that was a commitment by the US, Japan, Australia and India Mm -hmm. to work on counterterrorism together. Is there a helpful way that the Quad could address terrorism?
1: So um, the way that I think the Quad would be best placed, and this would obviously, with all of the diplomatic nuances that that entails, um, is that one of the most effective things that developed nations can do is capability you know capability building um you know australia did an awful lot of it in the immediate aftermath of bali we were highly active in indonesia um <coughs> certain jurisdictions can bring certain things to the table the, that that capability capability development too is not necessarily just about you know teaching people how to do things it's about relationship building so that you know Senior officials from countries A, B, C, and D all wind up in the same location for a two-week course. They build relationships in the process, and then as an extension of that, when something goes pear-shaped in jurisdiction A, they've got a friend they can call in jurisdiction B, which is vastly better than calling, you know, the desk and getting someone that you don't know. So whilst those courses and the kinds of capability development that you can do as a developed nation by assisting um it does literally build capability as in people's capacity to do things. The relationship stuff is is really important, especially when you don't have formal intelligence sharing relationships or formal, you know, alliance arrangements and things like that. It's a useful way to get around that. We did a lot of it through Southeast Asia in the aftermath of Bali. Um, So, you know, there's ways, that's one of the really straightforward and really simple ways to do it is you fund training programs in countries that don't have top-tier counterterrorism capability um yeah so
0: Hmm. i'm going to turn the last question now over to you personally i know that before covid happened you did a lot of travel you've um, educated a lot of government officials and afp on counterterrorism and terrorist operations i'm wondering in the course of your career have you had something weird or wonderful happen to you that you wanted to share as an experience of someone working in your field?
1: So I, um, I, I thought about this a little bit before I, before I came and the big challenge on it was things that I wanted to share because <laughs> <laughs> there's a lot. Um, yeah, look, my, my, my job has taken me, you know, I've been very, very lucky. My job's taken me all over the world to a bunch of really, really interesting places. I've had the privilege of take leading study tours to Columbia, um, a few times now my my good friend and colleague Cesar Alvarez who used to work with you at ASPE um and in a similar vein um we visit the Colombian police commando training facility which is a few hours south down a very dodgy road in Colombia um south of Bogota and as part of the amazing day that is going out there and being there and everything else they have one of the only um They have a series of mock laboratories. They teach law enforcement agencies all over the world about cocaine manufacturing.
0: So this is mock drug laboratories? Yeah,
1: literally. like It is a replication of what would be a much larger version of each of the different phases of the cocaine manufacturing process. And a very, very, very intimidating gentleman from the colombian police commandos and the colombian police commandos are closer to what we would call conventional commandos from the military than they are to what we would call a police officer Mm -hmm. um literally begins the process we then relocate to the next phase and you go through the jungle and there's people guarding it with you know ak-47s and all of it and he quite literally manufactures cocaine in front of you and shows you the entire process and again in this kind of Surreal environment. It's thirty-eight degrees. It's ninety-five percent humidity, and someone has just manufactured Colombian <laughs> cocaine, which he then tosses out over the grass. And it's this bizarre universe that you find yourself in, sort of watching this process happen. Um, it's an amazing experience. So
0: the training is to help you understand.
1: It's so that it's for law enforcement. The purpose of doing that as a law enforcement officer. Is that this is what the facilities look like? This uh, is the process. What to look out for. These are the kinds of chemicals that are around. This is how it happens. Um, yeah, they train law enforcement agencies all over the world.
0: I bet you never thought when you were younger that you'd find yourself
1: somewhere like that. No, like I, I, I could have, if you'd asked 19 year old me, I would have picked up my skateboard and rolled off in the other direction. So, <laughs> um, no, I, my, I've been very, very, very privileged in, in the opportunities that my my job and my career has afforded me.
0: Levi, it has been fascinating speaking with you and honestly, quite scary as usual. (laughs) Thank you so much for joining us. It's a pleasure, thank you.